Good morning to you all. It's lovely to be here and let me just thank you Matt and um, David our pastors for the asking me to share with you. It's a real privilege to share God's word and it's something that I delight in. Thank you Cassie for your help. Now off you go. <laughs> I'm just going to show you a picture here because I can't show you until Cassie sits down. Cassie. <laughs> no, don't clap. <laughs> I, want, I don't know whether you can see this. There's a picture here of... Um, a ute, a white ute. Is that at all visible anywhere past the second row? So Cassie was telling the truth when she said that when I was a, when I was a teenager, I had a car named Rejoice, because I did. And down, this was my youth leader car. It was a ute because I was a builder as well. And right down the side in big red letters, it said Rejoice. And on the other door, it said He Lives. And um, I was quite zealous. I guess. And I remember the, my, the kids in my youth group, if they were in my car, they used to pull their heads right down <laughs> to try and get below the door so that nobody could see them. And I remember going to a, a petrol station once and the guy, back in the day where people put, do you remember when people used to put the fuel in your car for you? How many people remember that? Like a show of hands. Oh my goodness. I tell everybody we're a young church, but I'm not sure after I saw that. Hmm. Anyway, the guy that was putting the petrol in, he said to me, Rejoice, he lives. He says, that's a movie, isn't it, with a gorilla in it? <laughs> so, not all, of, not all evangelism strategies are equal. Well, this morning, um, our, uh, our text is the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews. We're working through Hebrews, as you know, and we're not going to read it just yet. Tim Ratcliffe's going to come about halfway through our message and read it. Um, and we're talking about the very, very curious character, Melchizedek, who appears in the Old Testament, is mentioned once in Psalms and then again in this seventh chapter of Hebrews. And it's a very, very strange story. Melchizedek, Melchizedek is quite a, an extraordinary moment. It feels as though God almost just puts somebody in the story who breaks every rule that there is to break just because God can do that. We're going to go over here to begin this morning. So I'd invite you to come with me, but there's not enough room for us all. So here we are beside Abram's tent. This tent belongs to Abram and we're calling him Abram because he is not yet Abraham. This is in chapter 14 of Genesis where the covenant between God and Abraham which changed his name from Abram to Abraham hadn't yet happened. It's a chapter away. So Abram is a, is a nomadic herder and this is his tent. Who thinks that an ancient nomadic herder would be rather pleased to have a tent like this? 
It's possible that Ab- Abram is, is, is a member of the great cloud of witnesses that's in Hebrews 10 that I'm sure we'll be talking about. He, in that cloud, he may be this very minute looking at that and saying, why didn't God give me one of those? He might actually, that might be his question. If you've got a question you're going to ask God when you get there, Abram might say, God, why in the world couldn't have I had a tent like Stuart has a tent? Now, you can't, you can't see in here because the door's shut, but if you could, it's a tent for a king. It's got Persian carpets. It's got um, solid gold lamps burning with oil without a chimney. It must be coming out the door. You can't see any of this, but it's glorious in there. It's sumptuous. It's a, it's a small palace. I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 14. There's a big war. And I'm not going to read all the names of everybody involved because there's all these kings from strange places with long names and all these armies. And at the end of the war, Abraham's nephew, Abram's nephew, if I get it wrong, you can call it out. If Abram's nephew, Lot, is captured. Now, do you remember Lot? Lot is the nephew of Abram who God, Abram, who God said, don't bring anyone with you. It's an amazing verse. God says to Abram, leave and don't take anybody with you. But who does he take? Yes. As soon as he learned of his nephew's capture, he sprang into action with his private army of 300 and something soldiers, went and recaptured Lot and recaptured the goods that had been stolen from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, interestingly, and and rescues them. And this is where we pick up the story in, in um, Genesis 14. After Abraham returned from defending, defeating Kedalaomer and the kings allied with him. I said Abraham again then, didn't I? But it's Abram. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And now follow three very odd verses which you can see up there. Then Mel- Melchizedek, king of, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave to Melchizedek a tenth of everything, the plunder. Now, when I began to look at this message a few weeks ago, I knew a bit about Melchizedek because it's just one of those fascinating Old Testament things, you know, just so extraordinary. But I thought I might read some more. And I, I thought, I wonder if anybody has written a book about Melchizedek. So I went and had a look if anybody had written a book about Melchizedek. Well, my goodness, there are dozens, probably hundreds of books about Melchizedek. It's like flies to um, honey. Everybody who's got a weird idea seems to just zoom in and there's Melchizedek, the beginning of the end of this, and there's the order of Melchizedek, and there's Melchizedek and the flaming soldiers of the green lantern, and there's... It just, it's just like this vast collection of stuff. But nearly all of them fit into what I think of as the category of Jesus and. Do you know what I mean? We, we follow Jesus. It's as simple. We are followers of Jesus. But the, the Jesus and is so popular where people find... Another thing that you need, Jesus and the power of the tithe or Jesus and Sabbath observance or 
Jesus and praying the rosary or Jesus and the King James Bible. Jesus and, Jesus and. So Jesus, Melchize Jesus and Melchizedek. No, just Jesus, isn't it? We are Christians and we follow Christ. Have another quick look at those three verses. Pop them back. Begins in, in verse 18 of Genesis 14 with the, the word Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek. So Melchizedek's a Canaanite name and it means king of righteousness. It says they're king of Salem. Well, what's Salem? Most writers say that, Sal uh, that Salem becomes the city of Jerusalem in the future. It's probably one of the world's very oldest cities and it has a very long and complex history but very likely Melchizedek is the king of what will one day be Jerusalem. And the word Salem also corresponds very closely to the Arabic word Salam and to the Hebrew word Shalom. They're all very, very close. And so it's reasonable to say that he's also the, uh, the king of the city of God's peace. That's another way of looking at his name. And Jerusalem, of course, is, will become in time the city where the Levitical priesthood will be, will be based in the temple. Let's move along a little bit further. It says next that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. I was speaking to a, a dear friend about this. I, I rang him up to ask him what he thought about this story. He was my pastor when I was 17, so just before I owned the car called Rejoice. And we're still in very close contact. It's a privilege. He's in his very late 80s. But my friend, um, Robin Nance, there's somebody here who knows Robin Nance. Yes, that's right. Hmm. Interesting how our paths all cross over, Robin and Carol Nance. He said to me that that bit there where it says he brought out bread and wine, he thinks it's just astounding and you might as well say Melchizedek brought out his iPhone because it's so unexpected. It's, a, it's an image that belongs so far forward in scripture and I think we should take notice of it right now and remember it because we'll come back to that later in the in what we'll share this morning. So he brings out bread and wine, which is prescient and prophetic. And it says he was priest of God Most High. In Hebrew, that's El Elyon. And it belongs in the age of the patriarchs. It's not, how do you put it? It's, it's a God revealed in, in all of creation rather than a God revealed by a, a covenant or a revelation such as Abraham received specifically from God. Other, other um, priests in the Old Testament in that patriarchal period are, are Job, for example, and maybe even Adam, who, who were priests out of God's revelation, which is in the creation around them. And that's, so, that's who, who he is. He's not a priest in the order of um, Levi or Aaron. It's, it's just before then, but he doesn't have a, a, an order of his priesthood except his own. There's no covenant. There's no special revelation. And then in verse 19, he says, He blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hands. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek receives the tenth, which means that he is a king and priest of far, far greater 
in stature than Abram is. All right. We'll bid farewell to um, Abram's tent now, and in a, in a moment... What's that? Oh, thank you for that. Did you notice I was... <laughs> I almost went over there to have a drink, but I thought no. Mm, okay. Off we go. This is a little bit like Abraham or Abram packing up his car caravan of camels and equipment. In just a moment, Tim's going to come and read Hebrews 7 for us. It's a long chapter, but it seemed to me that it would be good for us to read the whole thing. But it is long, and so I want to uh, just draw your attention to those four things you can see on the screen there. Tim, come on up and get yourself ready. While Tim's reading, look out for these four things. A high priest who lives forever, the power of an indestructible life, an oath and a single sacrifice. There are many, many themes in this little chapter. It's very dense. But see if you can keep your ear out for those four. Tim's going to read the, the whole chapter of Hebrews 7. This Melchizedek was the king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from, Jeru uh, from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life.
For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. It was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of these, those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Just stop there for one second, Tim. We're nearly at the end. The four verses that Tim reads next are worth, just worth taking in because these four, in a, in a lovely tight nutshell at the end of the passage, describe the, the greater high priest that Jesus is for us. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from the sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath, which comes after the law, appointed the son who had been made perfect forever. Thanks so much, Tim. Now, you remember those four points that I asked you to hold in your mind while you listen to all of that complexity? Jesus is the greater high priest who lives forever. Melchizedek, without beginning and without end, without parents, without um, a genealogy, is a, a foretype of Christ who lives forever. There's a couple of different ways that um, interpreters read those early verses in, in chapter 7 where it says that Melchizedek was without genealogy, without beginning or end and without father or mother. One school of thought says that he was literally a person who was not born and did not die ever. That would see him as a, what's sometimes called a theophany or an appearance of Christ himself before the incarnation. Another time that that is said to happen, thought to happen, is in the fiery furnace. Do you remember when Daniel and Shadrach and Amish... Am Janroch? <laughs> there it is. That, thank you. <laughs> I was concentrating so hard on saying Abednego, not Abendigo, that I forgot to say Meshach <laughs> and got very confused. Now, did you know we used to live in Tamworth and just to the north of us there, there's a, there was a place called Bendemir because all the all the Queensland bananas that they grow north of there that come into New South Wales, they're straight when they leave Queensland. And then they... <laughs> now, what were we talking about? 
Jesus, the other, the other idea is that some commentators say, no, it's simply that the Genesis account, those are the three verses that I read over at Abram's tent, strikingly omits to mention Melchizedek's genealogy, his parentage, his birth or his death. Those four things are sort of universally stated in Hebrew literature about the people that, um, that are described. So there's two ways of looking at it, and myself... I, f I prefer the former. I feel that that's more the, the sense of what the book of Hebrews says. But finally, it doesn't matter entirely because the point is that Melchizedek prefigures Christ and the order of priesthood that Christ brings, that Christ lives, is entirely different from the Levitical priesthood and it comes instead from Melchizedek. Jesus was not a descendant of Levi, was he? Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Jesus is not in the right order to have become a priest because of his birth. He becomes a, a priest because of the second thing on our list, the power of an indestructible life. He isn't a priest by descent. He's a priest by appointment. And his appointment is given by God because Christ has the power of an indestructible life. Now, what's that? Do you remember when King David before he was King David, when David was just a shepherd living in the wilderness and Samuel the prophet was searching to anoint a king for Israel. And Samuel went to all the, the older brothers and none of them met his... What was it? I was going to say his, um, his ideal or his category, but it wasn't that because he was a prophet. He was looking for the prophetic confirmation and none of the brothers... And he said, isn't there another one? And they said, oh, there's little old David. He's out. We'll have to go and get him. Well, this little fellow, David, slew Goliath, as, as you know. In the very next chapter, he's, he's anointed by Samuel and then he faces and kills Goliath. One way of looking at that story, and this, is, this I think is very important, is that David carried with him to the battle with Goliath an indestructible life. Now... When I was young, when I had the ute called Rejoice, isn't it wonderful how this is all hanging together? I love it like that. When I had my, my ute called Rejoice, I was indestructible, or so I thought. And weren't you, when you were 18, like the risks and the, you didn't even think about, you know, it was just like so much fun, wasn't it? Oh, and I thought I was indestructible. Turns out that I'm not. But David was. And he faced a giant of ridiculous proportions and he felled the giant. It's important not to get that story wrong. It's not a story about I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the, I, think, sorry, I think that's the wrong way to understand that story, although it's frequently used to illustrate that. And Yeah, maybe that's fine. But the real point of the story is that David the day before he fought Goliath, or just before, had been anointed as the king. The anointing of the spirit on his life made him the possessor of an indestructible life. He wasn't going to be killed because God has chosen him as king. It doesn't mean he wouldn't die eventually in his life, but at that moment, that's what he carried. Christ carries that, but oh so much more, because... Christ is 
everything that Melchizedek points to. Christ is without beginning and without end. Christ is. He is. I am, he says. He is. Christ is. And so this is the power of an indestructible life that brings Christ into the fulfilment of the need for a great high priest. The third thing on our list was an oath. This is an interesting little bit. It's um, written in Hebrews chapter 7 where we read in about verse 17. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It's a quote from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's the one you see most often. And in that psalm, God says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And chapter 7 of Hebrews refers numerous times to that as an oath that confirms, given by God, an oath that confirms Jesus' priesthood. Fourthly, a single sacrifice. And this is, this is a point where you can easily see the divergence from the Levitical priesthood in which sacrifices were offered day after day after day. The sheer quantity of animal sacrifice that took place in the tabernacle and the temple defies imagining. It's, it's, well, I think the word monstrous is appropriate. It is an enormous and unending sacrifice. It can't be stopped because that's the terms of the covenant. But Jesus is the last priest. He offers the last offering, but this time it's not an innocent animal that is offered. The greater high priest offers himself the last and single sacrifice. You might have noticed that we haven't delved into the rather complicated topic in Hebrews 7 of the tithe. Go home and have a set aside about an hour and just read it through a number of times and you'll get there. But I'll read you a quick summary. Just as Abraham, the ancestor of the Levites, paid a tithe to Melchizedek and was therefore his inferior, so the Melchizedek-like priesthood of Christ is superior to that of the Levites. And just as the Old Testament assigns no birth or death date to Melchizedek, so the priesthood of Christ is eternal. I have to read it because I couldn't possibly remember that and I didn't write it, I got it from a book. I worry sometimes that when we gather to, to listen to the word as we are doing right now, there's a danger that we think that having heard it and understood it, the job's done. I worry that as Christians we get a bit caught up particularly with complicated passages like this. And it's hard enough to just understand it. And if, if I can tell it to you in a way that, that you understand it, then our job here is done. We've, we've had a good morning. And, but that's not enough. It's not enough for us to simply listen to the word. We must also be doers of the word. I'm sure you'd agree. But how do we apply all this? Well, I want to come on another little journey with you. We'll just get our caravan organised one more time. It's a bit like this everywhere I go. I've got just this endless amount of gear. All right. I think I'll just make 
I'm just making a little preparatory trip over here just to reconnoitre. All right. Now we'll come back. We're going on another little journey. Initially we were over there with, with Abram in his tent and now we're, now we're reading Hebrews chapter 7 and now we're going on a little journey. Do you remember that after Christ was raised from, the death, from his death, resurrected, the disciples were wandering down a road towards Emmaus and as they journeyed they were talking with each other about the things that had transpired. And their talk was um, heavy because they had expected that Jesus would deliver Israel, that he would be the one who would overthrow Roman power and that the Messianic age was, was about to begin. The miracles and the sheer momentum of Christ's ministry as it gathered hundreds and thousands of people was startling and, and glorious, and then he died. And so the, the disciples were walking along, on, along the road to Emmaus, and they are downcast. And then a stranger joins them on their path, and as they walk, the stranger says to them, what is it that you are discussing? And they, they tell him all about it. They say, have you not heard? Da, 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 da. And he says, he, he, he rebukes them somewhat, and he says, but don't you know what the Bible says? And in some detail, he talks through the Hebrew Scriptures about the, the prophesied Messiah. And then as their journey progresses, the stranger who the disciples do not recognise means to go on once they reach their destination at Emmaus. But the disciples say, please stop with us. Please don't go any further tonight. It's, it's too late. You need to stop. And he persuades them and so they... They come to Emmaus, and somewhere in Emmaus, they find a place to eat. It probably is the place where they're going to stay. I don't think the Bible gives us a specific about that, but we'll just consider that we're in some sort of a room. And they sit specifically at a table. Whoop, here we go. Here we are. They're sitting at a table and the stranger is still with them. And then the stranger takes bread and it just says that he, is, that he breaks the bread. And at the point where he breaks the bread, suddenly he's revealed to be Jesus. Yeah, I'm sure you know this story. It's so familiar to it, isn't it? Familiar to us. At the moment that he breaks the bread, he's revealed to be Jesus Christ. And... He vanishes. The disciples get so excited at what's just happened that they rush back to Jerusalem, which, is that over there? Well, it might be, mightn't it, because Salem was that way. Maybe that's Jerusalem. They rush back there and they're telling the disciples what just happened and all of a sudden Jesus appears in their midst. Just as he vanished over here, he, and what does he then do? He asks for some food. Have you got any food to eat? And he eats some fish with them. And in Luke's gospel, it's not long before he ascends. He's nearly gone. And so what's going on with the risen Christ and food? Have you ever wondered that? Why does he... Well, there's a whole lot of things. He, he is 
on the one hand, eating simply to demonstrate that he is not a ghost. I'm a real person. I'm risen from the grave in bodily form. I'm not a ghost, and I can eat. And he says to Thomas, touch the wounds in my hand. Know that I am real. In another sense, he is referencing the Passover, both the whole tradition of the Jewish Passover and specifically the Last Supper, where he broke bread with them. And he said, I will not break bread with you. I think actually it says, I will not drink of this cup until I drink it anew in the kingdom. And so his, his breaking bread with them is a realisation of that promise that when I next drink the cup with you, I will, it, we will be in the kingdom of God together. And we know that he ate and drank because it's in about Acts chapter 10. And there's a, a, a wonderful little passage where it talks about, here it is, 1041. He, he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had chosen and by us who drank and ate with him when he rose from the dead. So you see Christ drinking and eating with people and it fulfills these various things that I've um, mentioned. But perhaps more importantly than all of it, he wanted to eat with people. He wanted to be at a table just as I am at a table here this morning. And this is a point where I think we can see how staggeringly different the new priesthood, the greater priesthood of Jesus is when compared to the priesthood which is passing. This morning in the reading it talked about the, the sacrifices being ineffectual and not being capable of, of bringing the, the redemption that everybody wanted. Later in Hebrews it'll say, and one of our uh, pastors no doubt will be preaching on one, the chapter where it says the old things are obsolete. The priesthood that Jesus gives to us because we are priests, are we not? The priesthood of all believers. There are no anointed priests among us. We are equal as sons and daughters in the, in the kingdom of God. We are the priests, every last one of us. All, all followers of Christ are priests. He is the high priest, but his high priesthood is utterly different to the priesthood that went before in Christ's priesthood, there is no altar. In our church, we don't have an altar, do we? Do we? We don't. This is just a table, isn't it? You agree with me? Yes. I grew up in a congregational church, which is sort of Methodist, and it was quite a formal building, and I, I loved to be there, and it was where I first met God, I guess, but it had several steps and then back here it had a very, very dark, grand, carved table with these five huge seats behind it. Big, they had big points on them. They were, the middle one was enormous. And it was just a table and some chairs, but it was so grand. It wasn't an altar, but it was so grand. A step further, I remember we had a, a, a camp every year when I had, this is great, when I had the car... <laughs> Who'd have thought? Back then, we had a youth camp every year in a, what had once been a convent, and it was a fairly run-down old timber building in Murrundi, and on the corner of the block, there was a fairly small brick church, and one day, the, the priest was there, and I must have met him or something, and he said, come and have a look inside. It was just a little church, little sandstone church, very old. I don't know how old, but 
really, really old, early 1800s at least, maybe even, no, that's all it could be. And I went inside and in it, he said, look at that, and in it there was an, an altar that, you, that almost didn't fit. It was like the TARDIS. You go inside this little building and there's something in there that shouldn't fit. And he said, this came from England on ships and it was marble and it just went up and up and up. And, and, this, and in front of it, it was a, really quite astonishing. We don't have one of those, do we? But this is important, this is important. See, the religion of the Levites, the, the, the sacrificial system had all sorts of trappings that we no longer have, that Jesus did not give to us. We don't have vestments, we don't dress in holy garments, we don't have all sorts of ritual um, like we don't have a laver where, where the priest washes his hands. We don't have an altar where the sacrifice is burnt. We don't have all sort, we don't have a candlestick with certain numbers. We don't have all that. This is really important. We've got to understand that the new priesthood is not like the old priesthood. We don't have strict rituals. We don't have things that have to be said in a certain order. We have a new faith which is not external it's within us and it's not impersonal, it's deeply communal. When Jesus sits with the disciples after his resurrection, I think, and, and listen, I'm not trying to, I'm not telling you that this is doctrine because I'm not very good at, at that doctrine and, <laughs> you know, I'm just sort of trying to paint a picture of what I see. But what I see is Jesus sitting with his disciples at an ordinary table. I, was, I said to Matt when I arrived today, I've never really had a good look at this table, but I was so glad that it's ordinary. It's got dents all over it. It's got a bit of it missing here. Looks like somebody's, I don't know what they did, but they wrecked it. <laughs> and it's got a sticker. And it's got some black stuff that looks like probably somebody was standing on there at one time. And I love that because this is an ordinary table. Now, you've got to get this. It's an ordinary table where people gather. When the disciples met every day in Acts chapter 2, it says they broke bread every day. Now, for some people that means they had communion every day. For other people, it means they had breakfast every day. It depends how you read it. I think the two things overlap more than we realise. What were the love feasts that they were celebrating? What were they actually? They were meals. They were meals at which, and Paul talks about the gathering and how spiritual it is and how important it is. There's a tradition in Poland where at, on Christmas Eve, the table is always set with an empty seat. And there's a saying in Polish, which of course I can't begin to... Have you, ever, have you ever seen written Polish? It's sort of even more bizarre than written Russian. It's like, how could you pronounce that? But this is the saying, a guest in the house is God in the house. It's just so true. Do you remember it says in the New Testament, some people have entertained angels unawares by welcoming the stranger. Yeah. And... Again and again in the Bible, when a stranger is welcomed, it turns out to be a moment where God is revealed. Think of Abraham welcoming those, those three visitors who, who initiate the covenant. 
He welcomes them as strangers and entertains them. And lo and behold, God appears. A guest in the house is God in the house. But listen, this is so important. Don't miss it. Jesus inhabits the ordinary. We don't have rituals or rites or sacrifices or or special stuff. We are ordinary people and Jesus inhabits the ordinary. That's what the incarnation really is. Jesus became a man and he inhabits the ordinary. And as followers of Jesus, we lead ordinary lives and we welcome ordinary people to our table in our home. And we welcome people that way into the kingdom. The priesthood of Jesus is community. Amen. Thank you for saying amen. Let's, have our, let's bring our, um, our worship team back and uh, think carefully about all this, won't you? Hide it in your heart.